millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So let's get down to business. You grew up in Liverpool during the 50s and 60s. What do you remember of your childhood, Joe? Um, moving from house to house, my... my um mother and father had an only child in myself and we were on the housing list post-war and of course the the housing that was available went to families with more children so we lived with one set of grandparents or another and when things got a bit tight in the house or a little bit tense we'd move back over the road or certainly two or three hundred yards away and uh, mostly Later on in, in my uh, growing days, we, we were in Parkhurst Road in Liverpool, which was my mother's side of the family. Your dad, Joe, was an engineer, but also, uh, I think, a musician. Is that right? He was a concentrated pianist. He was actually quite a genius, my father. Uh-huh. He, he could read music, write music. He could busk. Um, he seldom played the piano looking at it. He, he he was always talking to somebody and um, really had great opportunities. When he came out of the army after the war, there was an opportunity to go with Joe Loss's band, which I suppose was like joining Take That at the time. Absolutely. But it, it's like in one direction now. <laughs> he, was de- he declined and was told that, you know, it was an uncertain living in, in um, music and he was a fully qualified engineer. So he always had that to fall back on. Um, you mentioned you were an only child, um, but also the fact that you were you weren't the fittest child, Joe. You were often ill. Is that right? Well, I wasn't ill. No, I had a lot of accidents. I was very accident prone. Okay. No, no, I was seldom ill. But um, what, what do you remember about that? What accidents can you remind remember? Oh, um, playing can... with my friends and falling on glass on the local plot and splitting my back open, um, clearing ice in the school playground and a, a hoe splitting my knee open jumping off the bay window to get out one night and cracking my ankle i think joe you're also one of the survivors of uh, the, the only recorded mini railway crash uh, allegedly yes although i can't find it anywhere i was i grew up i've got the scars to prove it the mini railway supposedly came off the in new tracks in new brighton at the fair and i had these scars up the side of my hand and across my wrist to prove it but i've, I've looked everywhere on websites and i can find no knowledge of it. Well, uh, hopefully some of them will, will hear your voice doing this, Joe, and uh, we'll get some details of that. Um, did you ever think about following in your father's musical footsteps? Yes, I used to have guitar lessons when I was a kid, and I even sat in with <clears throat> my father's band, the Saturated Seven, a few times. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, they, they were all top musicians, but um, they liked the life. Do you, do, you, so, do you still keep up the music playing, Joe? No, no. I, I used to hear the ball bouncing in the road, and that was that. The guitar 
guitar got thrown. So, uh, quite honestly, two of my sons actually have taken up the guitar and they're both self-taught and they're both excellent. It's obviously in the genes somewhere then, Joe. Yeah, somewhere or other, the, the royal genes go on, yeah. OK, and uh, you went to a very famous school in Liverpool. Quarry Bank has produced, well, you'll give me a list, I'm sure, as well as yourself. I mean, uh, top of the list, I guess, John Lennon. Of course. I mean, we, d- we didn't realise at the time. J- John Lennon, when the Beatles first came out with the first signal, Love Me Do, and uh, everybody at the school realised that this name in the book, you know, that John Lennon had had that book in a previous term, well, the books quickly disappeared. I and, bet of course, they did. Beatlemania <laughs> rushed through not only Liverpool, but the world, and uh, added to that, Steve Koppel. We both went to the same county primary school in Norris Green and uh, Quarry Bank, um, Lord Goldsmith, um, Derek Nimmo, uh, et al. You know, yeah. there, there are so many people. So, um, no, it, it was a top school. And, and the headmaster at the county primary school, Dave Mackay, was also secretary of the Liverpool Boys. And he'd kept an eye on me when I was at Quarry Bank and, um, <clears throat> excuse me, got me a trial for Liverpool Boys. Um, and it's about the time you're, you're, you're starting to get interest in that you're obviously a good footballer. Uh, it started to get interest from you. I think Manchester United were in for you, but you chose Everton. Well, I was an Everton fan, an Everton family. Ah. My my grandfather, the the one I lived with for a short while on my mother's side, um, he was a policeman in Liverpool. His son, my mother's brother, was also a policeman. They're both Everton daft. <clears throat> and my mother's job on a Saturday was to wait the local bus station and find out how Everton had gone on as soon as possible because um, if Everton had lost, my, my grandmother used to clear the house. My grandfather had come home in such a foul mood. So um, the, the Everton blood, was my my uncle Norman Norman Dainty was uh, president uh, of the Everton Shareholders Association when I got the job there. So wow. Everton was in my blood anyway. Although my father, being Manchester born, was always uh, a Manchester United fan. Okay, well so some <coughs> people have to be Joe. That's just the way life works. Uh, <laughs> um, I think we need to remind people just how big a club Everton was in those days. I mean, they won the championship in sixty two, sixty three. This was a huge football club. Massive. They were known as the Merseyside Millionaires at that stage, backed heavily by John Moores, the, the force behind the John Moores catalogues and, and Littlewoods. And, um, Pools Company, yeah. Pools Company, yes. And, and, and quite honestly, they, they were seen as the big spenders of the day. And um, great players, Alec Young, Roy Vernon. Uh, I'd watched all these players come through, and uh, it, it, was, it was a great time to be a Blue. And uh, you <clears> made your debut um, on the 15th of January 1966. Wow, it's a while ago now against uh, against Blackpool you a you replaced uh, an Evertonian legend as you mentioned him there Alex Young and b you also you were you were 16 years of age the youngest uh, player ever to play for the Toffees until I think did James Vaughan overtake your record recently James Vaughan came out yeah. on his sub the actual the youngest player to start a game is Jose Baxter now oh right of course yeah <clears throat> can you remember your debut Vaguely, it all happened all of a sudden. I was cleaning the boots for the first team to play on the Friday. The the pitches were frozen at the time, and I got a call to go and see the manager. I sat outside his office waiting, and then he came out and pulled me in. He said, I've just been speaking with your father. Well, God, I'm in trouble here. What have I done? And he said, you're going to be playing in the first team tomorrow. And he said, there might be a few press around the house because I've released it. You'll be replacing Alex Young. Yeah, I'm not uh, sure that did you any favours, did it? Mm. He was a legend in the club. 
he was a legend. Um, and after the game, we lost 2 0 to an Alan Ball inspired Blackpool. And uh, after the game, there was allegedly a bit of a kerfuffle where one or two of the spectators kicked Harry. But <laughs> we never knew anything about that. And we always assumed it was a little bit of a publicity son to, to distract them from the fact that Everton had lost at Blackpool. But I'm sure he made his mind up that day um, to uh, buy Alan Ball. Uh, and we'll talk about Alan Ball and the legendary midfield that you built at Everton in just a little while. If your debut um, on in the first weeks of 1966 was one fantastic thing for you, I think even more perhaps uh, in, in many ways important, uh, people forget as well that Goodison Park, where you were working as an apprentice footballer, was one of the centres uh, of the World Cup in 1966. Yes, and I was an apprentice there. I cleaned the dressing rooms after the games, uh, and some of them were in the right state. One or two of them, particularly the Brazilians, uh, they left a right mess. I think they had to get some um, cleaning services in for that one but um, quite honestly it was a great time to be around Goodison I saw the games we got we got tickets for the the standing areas as it was in those days so I saw the close quarters I saw Eusebio's hat-trick I saw Pele kicked out of the game and it, it was just a some great of the, time. Some of the most um, remarkable games in that World Cup uh, uh, Brazil was it against Bulgaria that he was he got they got clogged out of the game. He, he was absolutely hatcheted and yeah. I also saw the Hungarians you know Farkas scoring a superb volley, you know, and they they had Zoltan Varga, they had great players, the Hungarians. So it, it was really a, a wondrous, wondrous time. And of course, Everton went on to win the FA Cup that year. Indeed, they did. Um, although uh, it was taking you a little bit longer, I think, to break into the first team in any regularity. I guess it's the start of the 67 68 season, isn't it, when you really uh, start to establish yourself in the Everton team? Well, I, I was growing, I was filling out when I'd made my debut um, I was a scrawny kid of about 12 stone 6 I think and uh, went through all the growing spurts and, and I'd filled out around about 14 stone when I, I became a regular in fact it was quite funny you know there was no medical science in those days and uh, you know they, they were ringing home to ask why I was tired all the time and uh, I, they couldn't understand that I was a growing lad, you know, yes. and, and actually upset my mother once the chief scout rang up and said, can you feed him steak twice a week? And when I got <laughs> home, my mother was in tears. Where are we going to get the money to get steak from? <laughs> yeah, you think in nowadays, of course, the club will be looking after all of that, but uh, not back then. We'll talk a little later about the midfield that Everton were building up, the legendary midfield of Alan Ball, bought, as you said, from Blackpool uh, and paired up uh, with Howard Kendall and Colin Harvey, a midfield that still leaves Evertonians with a tear in their eye. The first sign that this was going to be something special, albeit you lost the final, was the run to the FA Cup final of 1968. Yeah, we, we, we'd played some great football on the way to Thank the you. final. And uh, in actual fact, uh, we'd beaten West Brom twice in the league that year. We'd beaten them six, I think, at West Brom and, and comfortably at Goodison Park. And we were odds-on favourites. We were young, we were vibrant. Kendall Ball and Harvey were... Uh, it, it was an instant, instant success and they, they had a great a great feeling for each other on the pitch you know they, they knew where to be and what to do and we played some great stuff unfortunately as you get with a young side we did somewhat freeze in the final and Jeff Hastel uh, flung his left leg and half volleyed one in and yep. I mean Jeff was a fine centre forward but I can't remember too many left footed shots from him and it just fitted in the postage stamp and we'd lost 1-0 um, of course, you're, you're young enough at that stage, Joe, to believe you're still going to get plenty more chances. And of course, you're playing in a in a developing team. The following year, 68-69, you got 39 goals in all competitions, uh, rounding off 
the the moves that, uh, as you say, Alan Ball, Howard Kendall and Colin Harvey um, were putting together. Uh, you also reached the semi-final of the FA Cup um, before Manchester United, uh, sorry, having beaten Manchester United on the way. Um, did you know at the start of the 69-70 season, did you feel you had, because it was a very competitive time in English football, Leeds had a great team, Arsenal had a good team, Chelsea had good players, uh, Manchester United were always there or thereabouts. Did you know 69-70, did, did you have a feeling at the club that you were going to make a close run for the championship? Yeah, we were never short on confidence and, and the exuberance that comes with youth and it was a good a good young side. We were, you know, Jimmy Husband, uh, of course, Alan Ball, Colin Harvey, Howard Kendall, Tommy Wright, we were all in our early 20s. You know, so th th there was never any lack of confidence, and we went off with a bang, of course. I think we won the first game at Arsenal, then went and won at Man United, and we were up and flying. And um, before we come back to how you won that title, I think we should talk at this stage um, about Harry Catterick. Uh, you know, there are managers, even Howard Kendall, and all that he achieved in his time at Everton is not talked about with the same reverence as Harry Catterick. You played under under the great man. Tell us about him. <laughs> He was hard. He, he was old school and uh, he, he was run like a boot camp. We had to sign in every day and if you were a minute late, you were fined. Um, if you were late, you know, there, there were no excuses. I remember once we had three players living in Blackpool and they got stuck in a, a motorway accident coming in on a Monday morning. They'd been home for the weekend and uh, they were fined for being late. And Harry's reasoning was that you left the game at five o'clock on Saturday. You've had from five o'clock then till 10 o'clock this morning to get in so you're late and uh, but he, if you were fair with him if you were honest with him he, he was honest with you and his sides played attacking football the 63 side the 66 side the 70 side we played great football and um, he, he was a great judge of a player and unfortunately he didn't get the credit he deserved from Her Majesty's press because he used to give them a hard time we're, um, we're one of the the keys to the to the, the title winning eventually um, was a victory over Liverpool on the 21st of March 1970. You scored your first ever goal against the Reds that day. It was a it was a win that was part of an eight game winning sequence that eventually took Everton to the title. Talk to me about the rivalry between Liverpool and Everton. What was it like back in those days? I mean, obviously well, it, we've seen how it's developed. How, what was it like back in those days? It was immense, and and of course there was much more, shall we say, liberal refereeing in those ah, days whereby yeah. you could assault somebody from behind and get away with it and by smiling and saying it's my first tackle ref I'm sorry and so they were very physical games and uh, that game particularly we'd lost 3-0 at home to Liverpool a famous own goal by Sandy Brown being the, the, the pick of the goals a, a, is it a diving header from a some diving distance header. I seem to have some vague recollection of it uh, from on the penalty <laughs> spot and it rocketed <laughs> it and um, we knew that even if, we, if we'd won the championship but lost twice to the Reds it, it would somewhat sour it so we were up for the game and we were starting a good run the night before Ron had said in the local paper that uh, he, he didn't mind playing against me I'd never given him too much trouble which was probably fair at the time but on the day I, I, I came good and um, the first goal I scored was at the cop end when I, I, I jumped, jumped and uh, out-headed him out-headed Ron and, and headed through the hands of Ray Clements and that was the first goal and Ron was so upset about it that they tried to claim later it was an own goal so, you know, there, there was always that great rivalry and then we'd go downtown to Tommy Smith's club and see Smithy and he'd growl at us. And <laughs> with it, for 90 minutes, we, we were arch enemies. After that, we were great pals. Um, 
so there we have Everton winning that title in 1970. I think nowadays, Joe, because of the way the money's gone, we kind of know who will be challenging for the title at the start of every season. Definitely back then, 40 years ago, I think it was a, nobody knew who was going to win the title each year. Not even, certainly not the newspapers didn't seem to know. In some ways, it makes the, enjoy, the, the achievement all the more enjoyable for the players, I always think. Well, they're certainly better for the fans. This year is so exciting because there's several teams involved and um, at the moment, certainly Man United aren't one of them who were champions last year. So that adds to the uncertainty and the excitement. It was getting towards ourselves, Man United or Leeds in, in the 70s that way. But of course, we never went on as, as we should have done. In 1970, we were champions. In 1971, we, we just didn't fire at all. And uh, of course, I heard on your montage of the start of this program about the the West Germany Everton game and I was on standby for the England squad for Mexico along with Roy McFarland and we both watched the game in a bar in Magaluf in Mallorca. I was on my honeymoon, Roy was on a holiday and um, we were there excited, cheering and goading the Germans in the bar at 2-0. Uh-huh. And we got out pretty quickly when the third one went in. Well, we'll come on to your England career in just a little while. I mean, looking back on that title now, you've done a lot of other things in the game. We're going to hear about them over the next hour and a half. Where would you place uh, a young centre forward winning the Championship of England among all your achievements? Oh, fan- fantastic. You know, I mean, uh, playing in that side, I-, I couldn't wait to get into training every day. We 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 trained hard we played hard we laughed we la- I read somewhere recently about a manager albeit a foreign manager wanting to ban players from smiling or laughing in training well it, it, it was I don't know it was fantastic it, it, it was an impetus for us and the, with Gordon West and Brian LeBone together both sadly not with us yes um, they, were, they were a great comedy act and we laughed our way to the championship but we worked blooming hard too Joe you mentioned it briefly in the last section but let's return to um, as we come up to the 19th 1970 World Cup in Mexico, England, of course, the holders of the World Cup at that time. Um, were you disappointed not to get into an England squad? You said you were on standby. Did you did you expect to go to England? Sorry, to, to Mexico? I didn't. The, the competition was so hard at the time. You know, it went, at a time when we're short desperately of strikers now, um, I was at dinner not so long ago and I, I counted, I think, 16 strikers who I was competing with in the in the 70s and late 60s to try and get in the England squad. So you can't argue if the Jeff Hurst is still around, Francis Lee, Martin Chivers is coming through, Mick Channon's around, Alan Brian Kidd's around, Alan Clark, Mick Jones. And, of course, Jeff Astle. Uh, Peter Osgood, Jeff Astle, uh, et al., and it goes on, you know. So it was it was hard, and I'm I'm barely 2021. 20, so you know I had to wait my time, um, which came the following year. But you know it, it ended up. Uh, I went to, on holiday, as I said, with my, my wife. It was a honeymoon, and there were six footballers in Magaluf, and we ended up playing football on the beach every day with with the punters. And uh, <laughs> it, it couldn't happen today. How <laughs> did that work, Joe? If you, you had you planned to get married, um, or did once you decide once you weren't going to the World Cup, you just decided to do it? Well, we'd put it back, you know, initially to June the 6th, just in case. And um, I knew I was on standby, so it was just waiting to see if anybody got injured, and I got the late call, which which I didn't, so we quickly went away after the, the wedding and um, say watched England play from bars in Magaluf, which in those days was quite quiet and um, not the uninhibited place that it can be today. Oh, oh sorry, I'm sorry to hear that joke. I had some image of yourself and uh, Janice, I think, is, is the lady wife. Yeah. Letting your hair down there, but uh, we'll return, return to that later. <laughs> um, 19. So the following season.
season after the uh, the title win for Everton, I think it's fair to say nobody could have predicted. I think Everton failed to win any of their first six games and didn't defend the title particularly well. What was happening at the club? It was hard to know, and, and there's no real uh, explanation. Harry Carter blamed it on four of the squad going to Mexico. Um, three of us got married, so he, he was quick to point that out. But I, I can't really, I, I couldn't really say, you know, because it wasn't that we were an ageing team, far from it. We were a young side who should have got better. And the only time really we showed anything like our best form was in the Cups where we got to the quarter-final of the European Cup, or the Champions League as it's called now, mm-hmm. and the semi-final of the FA Cup. And we lost to both both sides in the same week. The team effectively died the the third week of March 1971. Yeah, in the in the Champions League, or, or the European Cup as it was then called, you lost to the Greek side Panathinaikos. And then a few days later... The FA Cup semi-final, that was against Liverpool. That must have been particularly tasty. Well, it was because we, we, we're we also disappointed. I think we were the first side ever to go out of the European uh, Cup on um, away goals. They'd, they'd scored one at our place and drawn 1-1 and we'd drawn nil-nil there. Yes. So we, we were getting over the disappointment and our manager took ill on the way home, Harry Catrick. So we, we went to the semi-final at Old Trafford against Liverpool without our manager. Um, without our leader, as it were, and uh, w- we'd had a, a good chat in one of the one of the rooms when we got back. Brian LeBone and Alan Ball called a meeting, and we we had a talk about a, you know what what we weren't doing and what we had to do. And we went, we, we started off really well at Old Trafford and took the lead. And then Brian LeBone of all people got a hamstring injury, came off. And Sandy Brown came on, who was a good player, Sandy, but he, he just couldn't handle John Toshak aerially. And I, I always said to this day that if Harry Catrick had been there, I'm sure he'd have put me centre-half yes. to, to try and deal with the aerial threats. But we were 1-0 up at the time and playing terrific. Um, what did Bill Shankly have to say? Did, there's a story about Bill Shankly greeting you at the, before the game started. Yeah. Oh, Bill met us on the way in, and, you know, as we got off the coach, he he, he said to us, you know, um, you were unlucky on Wednesday, lads. You know, you, as if we didn't know, we, we'd yeah. lost, you know, just to remind us. And then he asked where Harry was, and he knew darn well where Harry was. Harry was in hospital. He wasn't well at all. And then made one of his famous Shankly-isms when he said that have have to put a window in his coffin before... Before he missed that game and so he's trying to undermine the manager as well and uh, it didn't put us off we started like a house on fire we, we were terrific until Brian LeBone got injured so you, you but, mentioned you mentioned Joe that in the 60s and early 70s the Liverpool and Everton players uh, very much mixed socially of course they did did you get to know Bill Shankly did, it, did that extend as far as Bill Shankly well, Bill Shankly lived in the next ground to our training ground. And uh, you, you, if you went in for treatment on a Sunday morning, you'd probably see Bill in there with his dog. <laughs> he was a great friend of the groundsman there, and Dougie Rose, and he used to bring his dog in, he said, to, to wet on the place. But, uh, no, Bill, Bill was a great character. You know, you... You can't let bias, you know, mar the the fact that he was a fantastic manager and a great football person. And uh, he, he would say hello to you. He tried to sign me twice when I was a kid and then when I was a young player at Everton. So he wasn't a bad judge either. <laughs> Let's talk about your England career, if I may. And uh, this is a funny old thing because it's 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 um, less than 10 caps spread out over a number of years. We'll talk about that fact in just a second. Uh, talk to me about your debut in a European Championship qualifier in Valletta in Mall. Yes, uh, I did in 1971, and it was um, 
It, it was a game on a pitch that was, it was like concrete, really. It was a, a shale pitch that had rained on a couple of days previously, heavily drained off and then dried. So it was somewhat rutted. It was a terrible surface. Added to that, Brian Clough had been, was a television pundit as well at the time and had been saying that the Maltesers, as he called them, were just a bunch of waiters and we should smash them out of sight. And, of course, that wired them up and uh, 1-0 in an uninspiring game with a, an uninspiring performance by JR was just about right. And the, uh, the your next England cap is a, a memorable day, for me at least, as first time I ever saw England play at Wembley in, uh, in 1973 as a teenager. Um, but memorable day for you as well because you scored your first goal for England in a game against Yugoslavia, the old Yugoslavia. Probably playing at the, the peak of my form. I'd had a great start with Everton. I think it was six in six starts or something like that. And uh, um, kindly given one or two plaudits after the game as and being talked about as the big centre forward for the future. And I only played two games after that before I went in hospital for back surgery. And that effectively took me out of it, really. It was probably closer to 1975, um, best part of three years before I got anywhere near my best form again. Yeah, and in the end, Joe, and I don't want to skip over your achievements, I'd say you scored a couple of goals for England in about, eight, I think it's eight caps, was it? You'll tell Six me. caps, Six but, caps. But, but two different managers. The yeah. first two games under Sir Alf Ramsey and then Don Revy picked me four times and uh, I was proud to play for two managers. But as I said before, the competition was immense. OK, listen, well, th- thank you to, uh, to tell us about that. If we might return to Everton, um, they never, as you say, the team, after those two devastating defeats in a week uh, in, in, in the season after you won the title, it, in the early 70s, it did just fall away then. Um, what, what happened at Everton? I think really that Alan Ball leaving was the, the first thing, really. That We'd had a bad season. We were having a bad season. Alan wasn't his best. Um, but we never thought for one minute that Alan would be the first to go and we're sat in a canteen one day. He came out the manager's office uh, with tears in his eyes and we said, well, what's up with you? He said, I'm off. Well, where are you going? He said, no, he's selling me. I'm going. I'm going to, to Arsenal. And we were absolutely dumbstruck. We'd always seen Alan Ball as not only a fantastic player, certainly the best player that we all played with at the time, um, but as a bit of a blue-eyed boy for the manager. And there he was selling him. So I I think that Harry probably lost faith a little bit early. I I don't know why there were rumours about him wanting to go to United or City. He was a Bolton boy and he lived near Manchester. But quite honestly, that was the start of it. And then uh, I was injured for a good while. So one thing after another, the whole thing started to fall apart completely. Your time towards the end at Everton, I think, uh, like all footballers, things do change. Billy Bingham came in. Um, they bought a very famous centre forward from Birmingham City, Bob Latchford, one of the great bearded footballers of my youth. Um, when did you know that enough was enough and you needed to move on, even though you love the club? Well, I knew my time had come because um, it had taken me a long time. In fairness to Billy Bingham, he never saw the best of me. Although I did play quite a few games with Bob Latchford and together, we we, we averaged probably a, a goal a game, eight goals in eight, in eight games together, I think, something like that. Um, but Billy never saw that as a future. And I can understand that manager wants his own views, but he wanted to sell me to Birmingham and I wouldn't go there. Howard Kendall had gone in the Bob Latchford deal along with Archie Styles, and uh, he'd given an option on me to go there whilst I was out injured and ill. And I certainly didn't think that after what had happened at Everton that I, I thought I deserved more than an option. So I, I wouldn't go to Birmingham. And about the time I knew then, 
and Manchester City, Manchester United, uh, and even Crystal Palace were all interested. And why did you choose City? Well... City at the time were, were a strong side and I looked at them, the players they had, I knew that they weren't far away from doing something. You know, they were terrific at home. Main Road was uh, a safe haven for them. Poor away record for whatever, but, you know, players like Mike Summerby, Colin Bell, Rodney Marsh, Dennis Stewart, Asa Hartford, the great defenders, Tommy Booth, Big Joe Corrigan in goal, Willie Donachy, you know, so all over there were top players at City and I thought this is the side on the verge of something. I know, I know people now look at the Etihad and it's the very sort of epitome of a modern stadium and I know it was a bit ramshackle at times but Main Road was an extraordinary place to play football a great atmosphere guaranteed uh, sometimes angry which you get with big I mean, big clubs in big cities that stand down the whole side of one side of the ground was just extraordinary huge and vibrant yeah, it was, and and it was wide open too. You know, the, the I think there was one game when it was raining so hard they were selling uh, plastic max outside and and all that kind of nonsense. But it, it was it was a proper old-fashioned football pitch and with a great atmosphere. Legendary groundsman too, Stan Gibson, who was growing grass under lights way before modern technology does it now. Um, well, you, you, as you say, you came into a very good team, and it, it may have taken you a little while to settle. But there was also a moment when I think they uh, you talked about trying to clubs offloading players in swap deals and things didn't City try and bring in Stan Bowles and use you as a makeway or as a straight swap or something I joined in Christmas Eve 74 and I got better as the season went on. Took me eight games, I think, to score my first goal, mm-hmm. and was doing better at the end of the season. Even though I'd had a, a bad knee injury at Chelsea and gone on tour, you know, as a, a disabled player, if you like. Right. So in the summer, Tony Book called me and he said, "Listen, we've a chance of a, a possible swap with yourself and Stan Bowles at QPR. They're interested in you. How do you feel about it?" And I just said, "I ain't going." I said, "You answered <laughs> the best of me yet." I said, "For no other reason, I'm going to stay here and prove it." And this is this stage now is sort of 1975 you know and I'd left my best form behind me in 72 so I had to get going again and unfortunately I did the next season you, you certainly did in, uh, in 1975-6 in particular um, you know you did a fan- fantastic uh, uh, run for the team and for, and for yourself and uh, what I'd really like to talk about as well as all your goals is the the run to and winning of the 1976 League Cup. I mean, we didn't know then that until the uh, the money came from the Middle East that that was going to be Manchester City's last trophy uh, for 35 years. Um, and you had a fantastic part to play in that because I think you scored in every round up to the final. Is that right? I scored in the final too and, uh, and, and I always said I had the best goal disallowed. I chipped one in from about 30 yards over the keeper's head and it was disallowed for offside. Against was, who? Against who? Against me, yeah. I was oh. never quick enough to be offside. No. Well, talk to me about the run then. You beat Norwich, Nottingham Forest, Manchester United, Mansfield and Middlesbrough to get to the final. Yeah, we did, and uh, we were strong, particularly great performance in the semi-final against Middlesbrough, you know, away from home in a mud patch, and then we, we got off to a flyer in the first game at Main Road, and it was one of those Main Road nights, and uh, I finished off, I think, with the fourth goal in that. We beat Manchester United, of course, on the way, which the fans always loved. Unfortunately, yep. we did lose the magnificent Colin Bell in that game, who who hardly played again, Was that really. the game where he injured himself, yeah? Well, he was tackled by Martin Buchan but it was, there was nothing wrong with the tackle he just turned very uh, 
very strangely, and uh, it, it was a bad injury. I mean, it was so bad, really, the belly, I believe, at one stage, they were talking about he, he could lose his leg with all the internal bleeding. I mean, I should just say for the younger listeners, Colin Bell was a player who, at that stage, before that injury against Manchester United, people like myself were watching and thinking, wow, he's going to be the best midfield player in England, probably the best midfield player in Europe for years to come. And although he did come back, it, it was so serious, the injury, Joe, if I remember rightly, he came back and he wasn't able to run with quite the same freedom as he had before before you got the hurt. From, from the best athlete you've ever seen uh, that used to run with athletes for training, you know, just a phenomenal uh, fitness level um, he was playing with a limp and even Malcolm Allison sometimes employed him as a sweeper or an extra defender you know just to get him in the side because he, he was that great a talent but it was never quite the same for Belly once you've had a bad injury most times it takes something away from you Tell us about the final itself. As you say, you've, you're already uh, still bemoaning uh, a lifetime later, Joe, that you had a goal disallowed, but City did, <laughs> City did win. <laughs> yeah, we did win, yeah, but I would like to have scored in every round. Uh, we'd, we'd gone away to a That's health farm to prefer, prepare for a week, and um, we, we were up for it. You know, we, we fancied ourselves. We were favourites, but it's famous now for Dennis Stewart's overhead kick um, that won the League Cup for us, and um, we look set fair then to go on and be big challengers in the following season um, Bill Taylor had arrived the, the England coach a terrific coach the following season and we, we looked ready to really go for it and 76-77 um, you well you say you were ready to go for it they played a very attacking formation yourself Brian Kidd Dennis Stewart in a kind of mo- very modern system if you like three up front um Pushed Liverpool all the way, missing out by just a single point for the title. Yeah, it was decided at Main Road, actually. We were 1-0 up and on a frozen pitch. I'd, I'd put us 1-0 in front. And um, quite an innocuous Dave Watson backheader. We didn't know that Joe Corrigan was making ground behind him. Um, it's a thing that they did so often in games. And Joe was slightly too near or Dave Watson headed it slightly too hard. And they ended up 1-1. And OK, it was a long time later and many games later but if if we'd have taken that extra points as it was in those days from uh, Liverpool we'd have won the league Um, As near I guess as you you were going to come to winning that league because in the summer of 77 Mike Shannon arrived uh, at Main Road from Southampton um, marking I suppose if if we're being fair Joe the the sign again to you that perhaps your time there was coming to an end Um, you finished at Manchester City with 99 games and 23 goals very respectable record and then moved on to Bristol City tell us about that well I I'd known when Mike Channon was being courted by Peter Swales, the um, the chairman at Main Road, and we were on tour at the end of the season. I was still in the England squad, and every time I turned around, Peter Swales was sat next to Mick Channon. Oh. And eventually, Mick, who was a mate of mine from England Youth Days, England Under-23 England Days. And a great and, guy as well. Oh, he's, he's a top man, you know, obviously a top racehorse trainer now and he came up to me at the end of the tour he said I think I'm going to be playing with you next year I said I'm not sure Mick I said I think I might be the odd one out he said well he said I I, I want to play with someone like yourself he said I I need a target man but I knew really that Tony Book I don't know whether it it was a matter of he'd never really forgiven me for a poor start at City or he just thought that Mick was a better bet to be the the target man role but certainly Brian Kidd and Dennis Stewart um 
would tell you that they liked playing with a target man and uh, I thought that Mick was more akin to what anyway it didn't matter because it, it, it was a start really of uh, changes at Manchester City I went on loan to Bristol City scored four on my debut and the thing took off from there yeah we should remind people of course that in those days and it's I don't mean to disrespect Bristol City hard to remember now of course they were a top flight team they were a smashing little club I mean and and um I don't mean little in, in a derisory way. When I got there, Norman Hunter was there. Of course, a Leeds legend and one of, one of the best defenders I've ever played with, that's for sure. Um, Peter Cormack was there, a wonderfully talented midfield player from Liverpool. Terry Cooper was on his way. And then people like Jeff Merrick, you know, who, who's top, top player, Jeff. Uh, Tom Ritchie, the pair of them were wanted by Arsenal at one stage. Up-and-coming centre-halves like Gary Collier, Dave Rogers, Jerry Gow, and that that was a good Bristol side. Yeah. You know, the, in, in today's current Premier League, I'm sure, would survive comfortably. Um, Will, uh, you spent a, a good two and a half years there before moving on um, to Norwich City um, because, you know, your services were always in demand, Joe, because, and I, I say it, I'll say it now, the current um, vogue for clubs not playing with a, a, a big chap up front who can hold the ball will change again because uh, um, I just think it's one of the ways, one of the most critical things in football. In, in that time at Norwich, uh, you played up front with Justin Fashionu. I did. I was two big, uh, two big chaps up front. I was originally taken there. John Bond said, "I've got an exciting young striker, and I, I want someone to come and play with him." And I'd done well against Norwich, even though we got relegated at Bristol that season. And he took me there, and uh, we started off okay. I didn't score the goals to start with that I would have liked, and then I found myself out the side. And um, b- before I got chance to show John Bond he was wrong, he'd moved to Man City, and a wonderful man, a soccer man called Ken Brown, uh, took over. And um, I ended up Player of the Year, which I'm very proud of at 31. Joe, Joe, Joe in, the, in the recent times, <laughs> we've seen the argument or the discussion about gay footballers has come up again. Had you any idea that Justin was gay while you were playing with him? Not a clue. Not a clue. No. Um, you don't think that at the time. It wasn't thought of at the time. It, it, it wouldn't have mattered anyway. No. And he was a great guy. He was good company. He loved a giggle. He spent lots of time at our house. At the, that time, we had an old jukebox that I bought out of a, a Greek cafe in Bristol. <laughs> and um, Justin, even when I wasn't there, Justin would be dancing around the jukebox in an afternoon on his own. He, he was he was a nice kid, a really good kid. What did you What did you feel, Joe, when you heard he'd killed himself? Uh, very tragic, very tragic, and, and a loss of a loss of a, a really nice kid. And uh, say we were all astounded. We, we were the, the team ringing round, you know, Mickey Maguire, um, Martin O'Neill, Graham Padden, Dave Bennett, all those lads who played with him there. Um, we were astounded, and. We'd been in America, and had, on recounts that we'd. we'd come back one night come past the bar and he was in a bar that that was a gay bar so i suppose we should have thought about it but mm-hmm. we just laughed about it at the time but hey hey ho on, on you go justin absolutely and uh, you eventually retire in as a player because we've got the whole a whole huge career still to come as a manager still to discuss here in my sporting life but in march of 1982 um, as so, so often with footballers in those days it's a, an injury rather than choice that brings an end to your career Yes, I, I had a knee that had been sore in all my second half of the season. I only played uh, one full game outside the top flight, and that was against Cambridge for Norwich City. 
and uh, the, the season that got promoted I had very little in fact only one game to do with that although we did win that one game and at the end of the season the, the specialist in Harley Street had given me all of three minutes to say um, your knee will never be strong enough Mr Royal and uh, and that was it a career over Were you always one of those fellows who was going to go straight into management? Well no not really I'd, I'd started doing a little bit of coaching with the kids and the community um, at the end of my career at Norwich whilst I was waiting to retire as it were and then uh, I'd been asked by Ken Brown the manager would you like to come away on a farewell tour with us I said yes and then we went to Montego Bay and whilst I was there reading a few day old Daily Mirror I think it was I read that Jimmy Frizzell had um I'd been sacked at Oldham. They played Norwich twice that year and looked a good, strong side. So the, the players around, Martin Martin O'Neill, Graham Padden, Mickey Maguire, were all saying, well, why don't you have a go? So I did. I wrote in about the job, even though they'd advertised specifically for a player manager. And I said, I, I'm going to have an operation in the summer. I might be able to play again, although I've got to be honest and say it's unlikely. Um, I, I wasn't first choice. John Wilde was first choice, the West Brom centre-half, who could have played. But they couldn't agree terms. And then I think it's about four weeks after that, I got the call and um, went for two interviews. Is it right you were you were actually, there was a small period in between ending playing and getting the job at Oldham, you were a second-hand car salesman? Well, I'd always dabbled in that. I, I said before <laughs> I'd like to be a golfer, only because it, it looks a great life and the yeah. money's terrific. I've never actually played golf. I used to sell cars in the afternoon, even when I was an Everson player in, in 1970, and myself and a neighbour used to buy a few cars from the auctions and do them up and then sell them on, and quite honestly, at one stage, I was earning more from selling cars than playing football. Wow. Well, of course, that was before the days when footballs are quite as well paid as they are now. Tell us about the old athletic club um, that you took over, because during this next section of the show, we're going to try and fit in what is incredible. If you think about it now, you were 12 years at Oldham, some of them very successful, some of them less so. The idea of joining a club now, almost at any level, certainly at championship level, um, in the second tier and lasting more than a year and a half seems incredible, doesn't it? It just doesn't happen anymore. Well, it, it tells you that we had um, a marvellous board. I mean, uh, and a great chairman I worked with, uh, Ian Stott, who was and, and is still a great friend, a great understanding. Um, we fully understood each other. And, and also I knew that we had to sell players. We had to market players as well as being survivors on the pitch, which was always the first port of call. Um, in the 12 years that I was there, we made a transfer profit every year, including three years in the top flight and two years as Premier League team. So th- we knew each other and we worked together you know, hand in glove on, on the transfer side. As you say, you had to buy and sell players, preferably at a profit. Um, uh, you weren't always necessarily the most uh, good judge of a player, I'd say, though, because at one stage you paid over 50 grand for Mickey Quinn. Quinny was terrific, by the way. Totally... Totally underrated. Oh, he, no, no, he tells me all the time how good he was. Don't worry about that. Well, he was, actually. He's very nimble, very agile, a great turner, terrific finisher. Um, shall we say he's sometimes an over-exaggerated sense of mischief, uh-huh. um, which I never minded. I went to sign him in Heighton, Liverpool, which is, shall we say, one of the uh, tougher areas, and um, his mother met me at the door, a beautiful but ferocious woman. She did the deal, and she said, where are you leaving your car? I said, well, that's it outside. She said, can't leave it there. It's not safe. Oh. So, so, I mean, the great times with Quinny, and unfortunately, we had to sell him. You know, mm-hmm. it, 
chairman had said to me on deadline day, Joe, we need some dough. Is there anyone you can sell? And I said, well, Alan Ball's always been a big fan of Quinny. He said, what can we get? I said, we'll treble our money, but he needs replacing then. Well, so, then in the mid-80s, I think two things happened. That, uh, and you can tell me how important these two things were. Um, you acquire the services of Andy Ritchie, and you get a plastic pitch at Boundary Park. Well, the funny thing about signing Andy Ritchie was that he he was down at Portsmouth having fitness tests uh, and medicals to sign for Portsmouth when I rang Borley and I said, listen, I know you got Andy Ritchie down there, um, but I've got to sell Mickey Quinn. He said, send him down. I said, but you got Andy there. He said, I want them both. Now, for whatever reason, whether he was being economical with the truth, he he sent Andy Ritchie back to Leeds and didn't sign him, having signed Quinney. And then we got Andy Ritchie in the summer for 50 grand, which for a man of his talent is larceny. And him and Frankie Bunn came together was probably the catalyst for all the, the future success at Oldham. What about the plastic pitch? Were you in favour of it, Joe? No. No, didn't want it at all. But we, we had only one training pitch that some wag had nicknamed Little Wembley. Little Wembley it wasn't, it was hopeless. So there were many a day at Oldham when I would be ringing round schools, can we come and use your pitches? Or asking the council, come and use one of their drier, higher pitches? Uh, because the, the weather is certainly not tropical in Oldham, as I'm sure you no, know. No, no. Um, and the one thing about the plastic pitch was we had somewhere to train every day. And it was going to it was going to bring money into the ground. It was used for cricket. It was used for the community. Um, we even played. I played there on a Friday night with Ron Atkinson's Over the Hill Mob. Surely Oldham had, not, had an advantage because they were so unusual, those pitches. Well, they were. QPR had had the first one, which was effectively um, uh, AstroTurf laid on a concrete base. Now, this was uh, AstroTurf laid on a rubber base and then filled, uh, two-thirds filled with with sand so in other words it was a soft surface you could play in rubber studs on it okay it was quicker than normal but you didn't have the anomaly we played a QPR once and their goalkeeper kicked it out of his hands it bounced once and went over the bar and you, you, that's certainly not conducive so having started as very anti-plastic pitch um I did realise it would be an advantage to us at home because we were very good at it. Um, but we also got better away from home. And yeah. you, you can't just get promoted on home form only. We heard there that the man who is associated, I guess, uh, with your rise up the league and the cup finals you reached is centre forward Andy Rich, who joins us on the line now. Hello, Andy. Hello, chaps. Hi, Gaffer. How are you doing, Stitch? I'm really good, thank you. Very good. Andy, the way modern football works, teams change every 20 minutes. There's a revolving door at most clubs, and yet this at Oldham, under Joe Royal's guidance, was a genuine uh, act of team building from an average team into an excellent team. Yeah, I mean, the gaffer brought in loads and loads of really quality players that just gelled together. Well, I say quality players. We were, we were probably languishing at other other parts of uh, of the leagues and he, and he saw something in us and you know there's so many of them he's already mentioned uh, you know my mate uh, Frankie Bunn and I played uh, loads and lots of games with him and, and he was a great foil for me but there were so many others there was you know the likes of Rick Hold and Richard Jobson and Earl Barrett 
you know, I could go on and on. Of course, on Dennis on. Irwin, yeah, as well. Yeah, Dennis Irwin, yeah, mm. of course. Um, you know, he's, he's probably one of the, well, the best fullback I've ever played with. And in 89-90, the pair of you, um, get the team, are still in the second tier of English football. So a remarkable achievement. An FA Cup semi-final, albeit a defeat uh, over two matches against Manchester United and a League Cup final against Nottingham Forest. You talked there about the Manchester United game. that Sir Alex still hadn't won a trophy. Um, they'd sort of crept through the previous round by Mark Robbins scoring a goal and we were flying and we played them in Main Road and it would still probably rank uh, amongst the best performances by an Oldham side under my 12-year tenure because we took them on. We went blow for blow. It was on grass so nobody could um, use the complaints about the plastic pitch and we felt at the end at 3-3 that we were unfairly done by because we should have won the game an amazing match and perhaps not given its proper credit because it was the same day as Palace 4 Liverpool 3 the League Cup final against Nottingham Forest what's your memories of that Andy Ritchie just a fantastic day um, the, the whole the whole thing going down with the with the team being involved in a in a cup final it was just fantastic going along Wembley way I think virtually everybody on our coach had a tear in their eye because it, it was just a massive blue and white uh, flags banners and it, it, you couldn't see any Nottingham Forest fans it was just amazing we probably were the better side that day uh, but we just couldn't manage to score and I'd scored in every round up till then and uh, and just didn't manage to, to get one over the line in the final unfortunately uh, Andy I'm listening to you there and I'm tingling and, and you're right and I'd always said that we'd gone over the top by the time we got to Wembley I recently watched the whole game again and we were actually the better side but we didn't have him Marshall, Dennis well, Irwin and Mike Milligan were both waiting for small operations afterwards. We played 60-odd games and we looked a bit tired, but we still were the better side on the day. Listen, let's talk then about after those great cup runs uh, with Oldham, you actually achieve um, a fantastic uh, feat, really, for the club. Oldham Athletic, and I don't want to use the phrase little Oldham Athletic, but people will know what I mean. Oldham Athletic are promoted in 1990-1991 as champions of the second tier of English football into the top tier level what an achievement it was and um, you know with, with no massive signings we we pinched players we paid 30 grand for um, for El Barrett of course and then had to sell him for 1.7 million later on Ian Marshall Rick Holden Andy Ritchie of course all top players and, and you mustn't forget the, the homegrown uh, engine of the side you know Mike Milligan um, Andy Barlow Nick Henry players like that so mm -hmm. all the way through we had a great blend and we, we haven't mentioned a quite unique dressing room if I say that they were edgy they were edgy um, they were humorous together yes they played out together and there's there's one or two of them that I, I wasn't quite sure where they were on a Wednesday but I always knew where they were on a Saturday and their spirit was quite unique probably as good as I've ever known Mother's Day is around the corner find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile from timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones Blue Nile has something she'll adore need it fast most items can ship overnight Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Your time in the Premier League, of course, Oldham, we're going to find it difficult. Uh, they're up against much better finance teams and already that was becoming important. But in fact, one of the things that they're remembered for, uh, an amazing uh, sequence of uh, events in the 1992-93 season, when having been written off and the bookmakers had paid people out on Oldham being relegated, um, you, you performed what has become known in, in football parlance as the Great Escape. Yeah, we won three in eight days. The end of the season, we were playing at Aston Villa on the Sunday, a Sky game, of course. And uh, if if we'd have lost that day, we were virtually down. But equally, we beat Aston Villa, which won Manchester United their first title. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then we went on and we beat Liverpool. They weren't easy games. And then we had to finish with Southampton the following Saturday. You know, the... The, the game that was going to make or break our season. We, we... And Joe, normally those sorts of games where everything is on the line, you expect it to be 1-0 to either side, but 4-3, 4-3 no, victory. Well, <laughs> we didn't do many clean sheets, but we, we, we were probably fifth or sixth leading goal scorers in the division that year. And I remember saying after the game, you know, that the Premier League needs sides like Oldham. You need the little fellas in there because we go for it. You know, Andy's mentioned Rick Holden. I've never seen a better cross of the ball than Rick Holden. And uh, it's what I was saying for two years. He was literally the best crosser of the ball in the game, wasn't he? Well, more than two years. He probably wasn't recognised. I'd, I'd watched him at Halifax on a cold Friday night and we could never afford him. And he went to Watford where his his words, it didn't suit him. You know, he could, he could never play their direct football, which he described, I think, as get it down and head it. <laughs> Um, you were eventually relegated in 93-94 and everyone remembers also that famous semi-final when except for a brilliant Mark Hughes volley let very late on you would have been on your way to a, a cup final but all good things do come to an end um, and for you it's in some ways a very I'm sure it was sad but a very fortuitous end because you leave Boundary Park after a dozen years in charge a very eventful years and return to Goodison Park eventually um, tell us about getting the job at Everton <laughs> Um, Mike Walker was having a bad time and, and it was common knowledge but when Mike Walker had got the job I'd sort of given up really I thought Everton had gone away from ex-players Howard had been there Colin had been there Harry Catrick had been there one stage you know so Billy Bingham they were all ex-Everton players and and it looked to me when Mike Walker got the job my chance had gone but uh, Everton had had a poor start and we were having 
problems. There was a hangover from relegation from the top flight. And I got the call and they said, would you be interested in Everton job? I just said, yes, um, come in. When you joined them, Everton were bottom. What kind of club? I mean, you'd been away from the club for many, many years. What kind of football club did you find at Goodison Park when you went back there? Well, it, it was weary, but it, what it was was full of good pros. People like Barry Horn and Neville Southall, Dave Watson, you know, strong people that I knew about, you know. Uh, and then there were other people like John Everill, Joe Parkinson, Andy Hinchcliffe, who weren't even in the team, you know. And the, there was the, the, the moody, if you like, and controversial Duncan Ferguson up front, uh, who was down on loan. Um, Paul Rideout, a great technician. Graeme Stewart, a vastly, vastly underrated player. So all the way round, you know, they, they were top players. They, they just weren't necessarily in the side. And, and uh, of course, as I say, you, you found the team bottom of the table. Yeah. Your first game was against Liverpool, of yeah. all things. And when I put this out, what shall I ask Joe Royal about? The response was uh, 90, well, uh, 95% were saying, ask him what he said to the Everton players uh, that caused him to win that first Merseyside derby, because that is some kind of start. <laughs> well, it was. We were bottom eight points. Uh, one win in 14 games and my first game is Liverpool you know how controversial can that be and fortunately we had 10 days to work with them myself and Willie Donachie we worked on pressing and closing and, and making it hard for the opposition we weren't ready to take them on yet in open football confidence was a bit low team spirit it was very jokey we worked hard my actual first game uh, as Everton manager was Liverpool was Liverpool reserves away and yeah. from that game I saw Joe Parkinson and I saw Andy Hinchcliffe, John Eberl, and said they're, they're in the side. So they came back in, uh, and we beat them. We beat Liverpool. Duncan scored his first goal for the club. Um, we went on on the Saturday. We won at Chelsea. We came back to Goodison, and we beat Leeds. Three clean sheets, three wins, and we're off the bottom. And eventually, of course, you do survive. Um, your form picking up for the relegation battle. A 1-0 win at Ipswich, a club that you would go on to manage in the penultimate game, securing your top-flight status, which you needed to do because you had something else to concentrate on then because uh, amazingly um, from the the wreckage that you found when you first got there although you said that you had some good pros Everton go on to win the FA Cup talk to me about that well, it was a distraction that we didn't need to start with. My worst fear was getting a vital injury or a suspension in the F in the FA Cup. But we we had some rounds when we were brilliant. We had one round when we were very lucky at Bristol City, and we had a bit of flu in the camp. But nevertheless, they battered us. And if they could have taken their chances, uh, they, tremendously been fortunate in the, the semi final against Spurs. I've ever seen to remember. Tremendously fortunate. Um, yeah, Spurs, no. Spurs fan thinks you were. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, the truth is we were terrific. No, you murdered us that day, didn't you? One of, one of Everton's best ever performances that I've seen. And um, the 4-1 the win meant, of course, that we could concentrate on the remaining few games that we had in the league, although our form was such from the first game. Projected over a season, I think we would have finished 7th or 8th with that form. We, we were at that stage comfortable, and we finished up with 50 points. Well, Manchester United um, were the opponents. Um, the winner came, some would say, from a slightly unusual source, the Paul Ryder. The cup goes to Goodison Park. Everton supports a boy, Everton player and legend as a player. 
How did it feel to manage them to a major trophy, Joe? I always say the same thing about this, Danny. I mean, it was amazing. It, it was the cream on a fantastic season. I was still more impressed by us staying up because the, the 50 points after two, after three thirds of a season, and you know, eight points after one third, tells you how the team improved. And uh, the the cup was great. We beat United twice that year, you know, which which no side was doing at, at that stage. They were a great United side. We beat Newcastle. We we beat Liverpool. We beat Leeds, we beat Chelsea, we beat all the top sides to get out of trouble. So that for me was always the bigger achievement. But I'm very proud that I'm still the last ever manager to win a trophy. Okay. well, uh, earlier on, I spoke to Barry Horn, central to that team in central midfield. And he talked to us about uh, that final and playing under you at Everton. He gave us a huge lift just as soon as you walked in the building, really sense of humour. Always happy, always encouraging, simplified things, got the best out of players through all of those things and made good decisions really in the sense that if if somebody wasn't going to fit into that that way of working, that way of thinking, then he had to get rid of them. So, you know, he did have to get rid of one or two to uh, to make the thing work. But but generally, you know, he and Willie Donachie, Willie Donachie needs to take some credit for what happened. Mm -hmm. They worked brilliantly together. They were they, they just came as a as a as a unit really and and they complemented each other brilliantly. You know, in the end when George got his squad sorted, the players just loved playing for him. So that final at Wembley against Manchester United, what are your memories of that day? Well, I, I have to go back, and I'm, I really don't mean to do this, but I have to go back to the semi-final because that was a, a very memorable day. And I remember when Joe picked the team, you know, his, his, his words were, this, this is really hard to do for me because I've got to leave somebody out. But it, on the other hand, it's really simple. You know, the team that played against Spurs has to play in the final. So, that, that again, you know, talking about keeping things simple and not overthinking things. Um, so we knew the team early, and, of course, we were massive underdogs. That was a, a formidable United team. As it goes, we were underdogs in the semi as well, don't forget. Yeah, that's fair. We were all very relaxed about it, um, and we just went out there and just played as we had been playing for you know the previous few months, as I say, since Joe came in. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't the best of finals, but you know we were playing against a very, very good team. We had to stop them playing. You know, obviously, there you were there that day with Joe Roll, probably the highlight of your career. Well, I suppose I've several, but playing for Everton was one of them. Captain in Everton was one of them. But my time with Joe was undoubtedly the best times of my career, without any shadow of a doubt. He was he was the best manager I played for. He's just a great bloke, fantastic sense of humour. And I, I just wish I'd played for him for a lot longer, to be honest. That's lovely words, Joe. Yeah, he's a great guy, Baz, and it's not it is mutual respect. I derived knowing he was a he was an international, very decent player, but he was far more than that. He was a great spirit and uh, very intelligent boy, you know. He loved the dressing room humour with Big Neville. We all sat and shook our heads at the time. Neville's very funny man in his own way. Yep. And I had three captains on the pitch. You know, I had um, Dave Watson, who was captain. I had Barry Horn, who was another one. I, I used to say if we were dogs of war, he was certainly head barker. And then um, on, on top of that also, you know, we, we had... Um, I'm just, God, we, we had so many captains. Dave Watson, Neville Southall and Barry Horn. So Absolutely. right down the spine we were strong and, and the build-up to the final was very laid back. We played, um, they could 
go and have a putt if they want on the putting green. They could. We played head in tennis, and then we got a little bit serious. We did some shape on the Friday morning, and then half an hour before uh, kick-off, we got together. Not so much a huddle, just said, we've come this far, we may as well win the thing. <laughs> Joe, after that famous victory in the FA Cup, of course, um, you know, things move along steadily at Everton, and they come to a, a kind of head in the, uh, in the transfer window of 1997, um, why did you leave Everton? Um, it, it, we haven't got time really, but the, the following season after our, our FA Cup win, we'd finished sixth. We'd yep. gone from the worst team to the sixth best. We signed Duncan on a permanent basis, Duncan Ferguson. We yep. signed Kanchelskis. We were signing Gary Speed, Nick Barmby, players of that calibre, and we were set fair. And the, the season... The season of 96-97, uh, which started brightly and then hit hit a bad run, our first and only run, really, of, of bad results in the uh, two years and, I think, five months that I was manager there. So there was a bit of pressure coming around the club. There was uh, a particular vendetta in our local paper, which I could never understand. Um, and came deadline day, I wanted to sign to Andre Flo. And it hadn't worked out for a number of reasons. He was going to be free in the summer and it was hard to persuade a, a chairman that spending money on a player that was going to be free two or three months later was hard. And I'd gone over to see Peter Johnson, the chairman, and sort things out. And uh, I think that we temporarily lost faith in each other. And OK, these things happen. Well, it did. did and it, it it's something that we've both regretted ever since. I see him regularly as a really great bloke and a good friend of mine I see him on holiday sometimes and it's it was the only time really that we ever lost faith in each other in the whole time together and it's we came up with a ridiculous decision that we would part company by mutual respect as it were mm -hmm. so um, we parted and I can only say we've both regretted it ever since we should have sat it out got through till the summer and then gone again you had a, a nearly a year off then. Did you think your time in management was over? No, I was determined to take a good, a, a good uh, spell out and a good holiday, give some time to my wife and my family. Um, I'd always intended to come back for the right club. Uh, I'd had offers, um, but the first one that appealed to me uh, tremendously was when. Uh, I got the call to go to, to Manchester City. Ah, now, Manchester City. Not the club we know today, Joe. When you when you took <laughs> over, um, they were in the lower reaches of the second tier and heading for the third tier. In the following two or three years, the most incredible things happened there. I don't know about now. It's hard to tell now what goes on there because it's so well run and, they, of course, they have the money to do whatever they like. But it is a, But prior to the current uh, era, it was an amazing football club city where almost anything could happen and everything did. Yes, I mean, uh, I used to refer to city-itis, so a, a thing that just when you think <laughs> things are going well, uh, it starts going wrong, or just when you think things are going badly out of the blue, something amazing happens. Um, it was just a totally unpredictable but wonderful football club. Still people there that I remembered from my tenure as a player there, and... Uh, Went back and, OK, we, we did initially go down. The last 12 games we improved, but on the last day of the season, we had to win at Stoke, which we did 5-2, and we needed two results to go for us, and they both went against us. So that was city Isis again. You know, just when you think things are going well, it, it all went wrong, so ah, we were relegated. You were, but the city Itis reverses itself the following season. Um, 
against expectation. I think lots of people thought City might come straight back up, but you didn't quite make it. You had to go to the playoffs. And, uh, well, in, 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 that, in that match against Gillingham, I believe not only is it one of the legendary games in English football, um, <laughs> but it's the thing that, to my mind, established the playoffs as the, as the quite brilliant thing that they've turned out to be for the game. Yes, and, and I'm still not a fan of the playoffs, but I can see totally... As that... a professional, I understand why you might think that if you get the points, you should be promoted. Yeah. But the actual playoff matches have turned into a fantastic finale for the season, haven't they? I, I couldn't argue with that, and we must consider the fans, and the fans love it, and it does give hope you know, to that late finisher, as it were, but... We looked like we were down and out. I think there were two minutes left and we were two, two goals down. You'd gone behind really late in the game. Um, Carlos Saba and Robert Taylor had scored for Gillingham. And themselves late goals, 81-86. People forget it was nil-nil after 80 minutes. Um, Kevin Horlock pulled one back for you. And then everyone else knows what happened. I mean, an amazing, amazing day, Joe. And I suppose uh, you can argue the rocket fuel for what happens next because... Uh, um, as sometimes happens, but it really only happens at clubs like Manchester City. Back-to-back promotions and back into the top level of English football. <laughs> it, it was amazing times, it really was. The, the coach home was quiet. It was relief. Um, the chairman, David Bernstein, had a message from the council, would we like an open-top bus? And I rejected it. I said, Manchester City shouldn't really celebrate coming out of the third tier of football. So... Um, and we went for the next season, a pre-season meeting with all the um, with, with all the directors, and they said one or two said, "Do you think we can get anywhere near the playoffs?" And I said, "I expect us to go up." And it was a bit brash, I know, but we mm-hmm. we did, albeit on the last game of, of the season at Blackburn. And again, City Isis comes into it because Blackburn battered us for 60 minutes, hit the woodwork three times, scored once. And then we did what we could always do. We scored four in no time at all. And uh, just a, a memorable, memorable time. Well, before we get on to what happened in the, in the Premier League, I think it's f- fair to ask about that team then that, kept, that won the back-to-back promotions. Um, what, what was its qualities? And who were the players who, who you'll, you know, when you're an old man, Joe, you'll think back and say, boy, I got something out of those lads. Andy Morrison had come to us. We were struggling in the third tier and Nanny Morrison had come um, and although he didn't play that many games, he made an instant impact on the team. He was a leader, he was talented. We all knew that he had uh, a background that wasn't necessarily conducive to himself or pro football at times. You know, he'd had problems with, with both the law and uh, addictions, but uh, he readily admits that in his own book, so mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not you know, snitching on him. You're not talking about school here, no. Yeah, I know. So, but Andy came in and he he gave the fans someone to believe in. He gave the team a, a leader and he, he, without physically doing it, he got hold of the team by the scruff of the neck. And we came with a late run, which looked at one stage that we might go up naturally, but uh, that wouldn't have been Manchester City. Would of course, it? it's uh, inevitable in modern football that uh, as soon as things start to go wrong um, and City were relegated again, um, that uh, your time there came to an end. What do you remember about that time in your career? Um, very sad, really. It was a hard time um, domestically as well. I my, think your my, wife was very ill, was she? My wife had cancer. My father had cancer and emphysemia. Um, we were struggling on the pitch. We were underfunded. There's no doubt about it. It was still basically the side that came up two divisions. We had two or three or four maybe new arrivals, but probably needed more. And 
when I went to a, what I thought was going to be a, a board meeting to discuss spending for the following season, having been relegated, uh, David Bernstein, the chairman, told me that I was being uh, fired. What was your reaction to that? Um, I wasn't totally surprised. You, you must realise that there's no mitigation in relegation, no matter what the circumstances are. It was more the way that I'd been fired than the actual fact that I was fired, because Manchester City he had under that regime, got themselves relegated on a Sunday so that they could tell me on a Monday that I was no longer a Premier League manager. And that was, of course, ended up with us being in court and all got very nasty. And I was uh, supposed to have been in charge of a pub team for, for yeah, three years. Yeah, there was a story in the MEN, the Manchester Evening News, um, that you'd been sacked because you presided over some kind of mad drinking culture. Yeah, which is, it's it was all whitewash, as we know. And... Uh, but it got very naughty. I mean, even later on, um, Manchester City actually sent bailiffs to my house while I was down in Ipswich um, looking to to get some money out of me, which was, was always in a, a safety uh, a safety deposit account in, in Manchester, waiting for the lawyers to clear up the business after they'd won the appeal. So it, it all got very naughty, and I felt very aggrieved that after three years as a player, uh, three years as a manager, never done them anything but good, I felt, that they were doing stuff like that. Has, but, it, has it soured your feeling for the club long term? No, because it's a different regime there now, and they're, they're, they're very nice people. You've got to say that the current people in charge at Manchester City deal with the club with great dignity. Your next port of call is a club that actually played an incredible part in your career, I'm told, um, by my Ipswich Town supporting uh, producer, that Oldham Athletic were promoted at Portman Road, Everton stayed up by beating Ipswich at Portman Road, and City, of course, we just talked about, <laughs> relegated by losing at Portman Road. So uh, you inevitably were going to end up there, weren't you? I was, and I and got on very well with David Sheepshanks whenever I'd met him, a, a wonderful football man. How on earth he was never never got the top job of the FA, I, I do not know, because he, he would have been perfect. Um, and when he came to call, um, I went down for an interview in London, and um, we had three marvellous years together. Um, tell us about your time at Ipswich, because uh, it's it's a fantastic club. Um, everyone remembers their great team of the early 80s. Lots of people have um, uh, uh, very fond memories of, of the club. But, of course, you were struggling at this time and, indeed, eventually went into administration. Well, they'd, they'd just been relegated and uh, George Burley had, be, had been sacked. And I was given the job with a mandate that we have to sell one player, probably Matt, you know, who's seen as the most valuable player. This is we, Matt Holland. Matt Holland, yeah. Extra and extraordinary. It should be viewed as the most uh, excellent player, but that's another story. Oh, he's top class. Don't worry. He was a leader as well. Matt had to go and then we would be fine. And instead of that, it didn't quite happen so easily. And the club went into administration, which meant effectively we were third or fourth bottom of the time when I took over. Couldn't even loan a player, never mind buy a player. So we came with a late surge. I think we finished seventh and uh, had we been able to loan two players that year, I'm sure we would have gone up naturally. Well, as you say, um, and I was only being uh, naughty because he's in the room, um, Matt Holland was your captain for that first year. Yeah. Um, an excellent Ipswich Town team that you eventually put together on a shoestring and uh, continue to be a good team. Matt, um, your, your, old, your old governor is here. What, what's Hi, it? Matt. What? Joe, great to speak to you. I hope <laughs> everything's so. well. What was, the, what was the effect when Joe Royal arrived at Portman Road? Because you weren't doing well, were you? No, it was immediate, to be honest. I can't speak highly enough of, of Joe. Great man-manager. 
players loved him. It's very rare that you have a dressing room that, that all backs a manager, and yet that was pretty much what we had. Uh, I remember Jim McGilton telling me a story about Joe, and he dropped Jim, and Jim went into his office like the Incredible Hulk, ready to rip Joe apart, and he said he came out like Stuart Little agreeing with the decision to leave him out, and that's, that was the effect that Joe had. Um, and uh, as you say, he, he gelled together the dressing room. Um, what kind of football was he asking you to play? Because I remember later on, after you left, Matt, they were one of the most attacking football teams I think I've yeah. ever seen. Yeah, that's right. We had, well, after I left, Darren Bent, Shevki Kucci scoring plenty of goals, got into the playoffs as well. Uh, yeah, attacking football. I mean, we had to win games because we were fourth bottom and we still had designs on, on getting promotion. Uh, as, as Joe said there, we finished seventh in the league eventually and we had a, a great surge in the second half of the season and came very close, but we played some very good football as well. It might be a lesson here, actually, Matt, in uh, in the championship now, I think it's particularly at that level. Managers get... 10 months now is that the average length of time and yet here's an example of getting somebody who knows what they're doing they've been around the block knows what they're doing and giving them a couple of years to get their, their players in and it all worked out reasonably well for Ipswich Town yeah I think through the course of the season we, we did lose players um, I think that was a difficult thing to, to cope with um, and I went the following summer as well and yet Joe still managed to get the team you know, up into, into the, the playoffs, playoffs yeah. and, and, and flying high and scoring plenty of goals. So that's credit to, to Joe and credit to David Sheepshanks as well for recognising the, the, the Joe's ability. I must apologise, actually, because I scored in that game that sent Man City down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I remember. Yeah, <laughs> I think Martin Ruiz has scored as it's well. E- it's easy for you to remember the individual goals, though, isn't it, Matt? Yeah, it is, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, Matt, thank you for giving us your recollections. And Joe, what was fantastic about what, the next couple of years there at Ipswich? You did make the playoffs twice, but as Matt was saying, with Darren Bell- and Shefty Kuchi in particular up front um, it was one as I say one of the more attacking teams I can ever remember seeing in English football was that a deliberate policy? Well we went for it you know we went for it we were losing defenders right left and centre Jamie Clapham had, had had to go for money uh, John McGreal had to go because Burnley were giving him better wages than we could offer Chris Makin was injured he'd had to go and and we changed our goalkeepers Kelvin Davis had come in he was terrific on a free so we went for it you know, we, we went for it. Shefki had come under a cloud. He'd been at Sheffield Wednesday and not had a good time. In fact, people laughed when he came, but Shefki was a lovely man, a great athlete and a perfect foil for of a young whippet like Darren Bent. So we went, but there were, it was a shame we were so close twice. In 4.05, I mean, you were, but there was a stage where you were several points clear. Yes, we were, and then Shefki got injured, ah. and um, we struggled. I, I'd got um, Jamie Scowcroft in on loan, and it didn't quite work as it does the second time around for Jamie, and uh, and we missed Shefki and didn't quite pick up the momentum again, and um, then of course in the dreaded playoffs. But you know, even then, well, you, you know, lost we lost to West Ham. Yeah, yeah, we lost twice to West Ham. Uh-huh. You know, and one of them particularly, we'd gone in with David Unsworth as our left back. The end of his loan spell had come. We we had the offer to take him on on a free, but we couldn't afford to take him on as a, on a free. That cost us daily, you know, because West Ham tortured us down the wings in, in the um, playoffs and it wouldn't have happened if we'd have had Dave Unsworth there. 2006, uh, you leave Ipswich Town. What was, what was behind that, Joe? Um... David Sheepshanks and I were great friends and I had, I'm sure, his total backing. He did say to me in one of our meetings that um, he would continue to back me, um, as indeed um, would the chief exec, Derek Bowden. He said, but he, he had to be honest also and say that there were one or two for change on the board. Mm-hmm. 
And I said to him, well, quite seriously, if that's the case, you've got your change. I said, because I quite felt that, you know, the, the job that myself and Willie had done there, Willie D, yes. Willie Donachy, I, I felt that if the job didn't merit total support, um, if, if they wanted change, they had change. I want to ask you one quick question about Ipswich Town. They are now the side who have been the longest in the Championship without going up or down. Um, I worry sometimes with the way the game is financed, though, whether they'll ever get back into the Premier League. What's your feeling, Joe? Well, they can do because this this sounds like downward faint praise. That this is the most ordinary championship I've ever seen. There are no runaway sides in it anymore. The, you know, you don't see a side like when Manchester City came out under Kevin Keegan. They were an outstanding side. Um, when Reading came up under Stevie Coppel, they ran away with it. When Sunderland and, got a hundred points under Roy Keane. Yeah, but there's no one like that at the moment. And anybody on any given day can can go up in that division and it needs a small injection of cash I always said to David Sheepshanks I wish we had two million I said I guarantee you that we'd go up and uh, I would have stood by that you know we we had Ricardo Fuller you know all those years ago as a young player he'd come on loan and impress so much and we were going to get him on a free and we couldn't do it and those two incidents really were the highest frustration points, I would say, uh, of my time at Ipswich Town. A lovely club, a fantastic chairman, and I really want them to do well. I just wish he was nearer, I'd go more. OK. And that should have been really, I guess, you know, the natural movement of time. That should have been the end of your time managing. But there's one more port of call. Uh, in the spring of 2009, um, you went and helped out again at Oldham. Well, they were changing the manager. I think it was John Sheridan, if I'm sure it was. Yeah, John had left, had, yeah. had gone, and they wanted to wait till the end of the season before they made big decisions, and they said, would I go back for the short term? And I did. And uh, there was a, a day when we thought John Wardle, my ex-chairman at Manchester City later on, um, looked like he was going to come back and put some money into the club, and that might have been different. But realistically, it was only ever going to be short term. And so the curtain comes down, I guess, I'm, I'm never say never, on your managerial career. Of course, you're still very much in the game, a respected pundit. You must get sick of talk sport ringing you because every time <laughs> anything goes on in any of those clubs, someone says, well, get Joe. Joe will know what's going on. Well, I've got too many clubs, you see. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, but listen, thank you very much <clears throat> indeed you. for that. And uh, now that you've finally got off the treadmill of football playing and football management, I know I say we're forever ringing you here at Talk Sport and many, many other radio and TV stations uh, need the, uh, the, the, the your wisdom. Um, what do you? How do you spend your time? How do you put your days in? Um, I have four yeah. grandchildren and they're time consuming I do a little bit of radio uh, occasional television um, I have tried for a few jobs you know quite a few jobs over the years yeah. but there is ageism in football I'm sure that people say oh he's 64 now nearly 65 so probably lost the plot I I had a great chance of the Leicester City job a number of years ago and I got a little bit agitated and unsettled waiting for a decision uh, from Milan Mandric and I should have been a little bit more patient because I think it would I think I could have worked with Milan but Anyway, nevertheless, I fill my time. And uh, let me ask you about them, one of your old clubs. Uh, it's another very, very exciting time. You mentioned this this season um, is incredible with Arsenal, Chelsea, Mourinho, who mentioned. Are City going to win the title this year, Joe? 
I thought City would win it last year. I, I still think City have the best players. If you compile a Premier League team, I think there would be more City players in than, than any other club. Um, they're playing some marvellous attacking stuff at the moment. Great to watch, exciting, scoring lots of goals. And, and even their shadow 11 goes to Bayern Munich and wins. So, you know, Manchester City would still be slightly my favourites, but Arsenal are there at the moment. And uh, let's hope that there's many, many, many years still ahead of you, Joe. What do you hope for in the, re- in the rest of your life for you and your family? Well, as I say, I'm totally enjoying my grandchildren. Uh, I still will apply for one or two jobs if the right job comes up. OK, so that, that door is not closed then? No, it never has been totally. Right. It's, it's been closed by other people, but sure. I have to be realistic and also say at 64, 65 in April that it gets harder and harder. I, I can't even get near an interview at the moment. I've applied for one club several times and not even got an interview. So it, it shows you the, the view, either that or they just don't think my CV is good enough. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening. And make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify for more top talk sport content. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.